Dan, you ready? All right, good morning. As John mentioned, we're continuing our series on uh, Jesus and Joseph. And uh, we can turn to Genesis chapter 42. Uh, not 42, where am I? 41. No, really, I prepared, honest. I have a plan. <clears throat> Be careful with that. Genesis 41, we're going to actually kind of read similar passages that we read last week. Genesis uh, 41, beginning in verse 43. In fact, I'm going to start a little earlier just so we have context. Uh, Starting in verse 39 of chapter 41 of Genesis. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee! So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paana, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Padi, Pharaoh, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up in the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. Let's look to the Lord. Our Lord and God, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you that is perfect. It is without error. It is breathed into men by you to be written down for us to have today. So, Lord, as we cherish this word, may we take the, the appropriate heart attitude uh, towards learning and discerning and growing from your word. Bless our time uh, this morning uh, in this study. And, uh, Lord, I know that I am not adequate, but I know in you all things are possible. So, Lord, I pray uh, for your blessing to the assembly and to myself this morning for the things we need to learn from this passage. I uh, just uh, want you to be glorified, and we thank you again for your grace and for the wonderful privilege it is to have this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up from where we left off last week, and now um, this time in the life of our hero, Joseph, he has now been elevated. He's been sold by his brothers, and he's been in prison, and he's been falsely accused of things by Potiphar's wife, and all these things have happened to him now, and now he's reached the place where he's being brought out. Uh, God's used him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and now he's being recognized by Pharaoh. And in that, he gets some blessings. Last week, we looked at how everyone bows the knee to Joseph. Joseph's presence causes everyone to humble themselves before him. Joseph's got it pretty good right now after all he's been through, i got to say. He's been from prison to now he's in Pharaoh's palace. Maybe he has his own palace. Probably has a beautiful wife. I imagine if uh, he's going to give him a wife, she's going to be a beautiful bride. And so Joseph's actually doing pretty good. Things are not always what they look like. I think when we look later at Joseph's life, as we finish up this series, uh, we're going to realize that this really wasn't all that Joseph needed. 
but this is what he gets right now uh, for who he is. Well, Joseph is given a bride. We read in verse 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph a bride, and her name is Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Um, this is a major gift to Joseph. This is not just any woman, like pick a woman. But here's the challenge. I would think for Joseph, um, his bride is not Hebrew, like he is. Joseph's father would say he has a Gentile wife. A Gentile wife. She's not of him. Um, what, I, what I can't say, I don't know, but I'm going to take some things out of Scripture historically, and I'm going to make a, a hopeful guess that though his wife is Egyptian and not Hebrew, I don't know how much influence she actually had on Joseph and his relationship with God, where you would think she would pull him away, as we saw so many times with our kings of Judah and those kings when they married from other nations and other, other, other um, beliefs. They always went the way of the wife. If that happened, how would the Hebrew nation still exist in Egypt that could be enslaved and recognized? They would have bled right into the culture. Joseph and all his brothers would have just become Egyptian. I imagine in this point, um, Joseph is, is dressed in Egyptian garb. He's wearing Pharaoh's ring. And, uh, um, you know, there's, there's some cultural impact on Joseph. But just because she's a, a Gentile bride, I'm going to take the, it's dangerous to take an assumption, but based on the history that we have with what happens with the Hebrews, that they're still Hebrews 400 years later, I'm thinking Joseph held to his God. Joseph held to his God. or whether They would not be recognized. 400 years later, they would not be recognized. Now, obviously, um, if you're following the series, um, and if you're, you're time here, what we're doing is we're looking at the life of Joseph, and we're looking at illustrations that point us and glorify Jesus Christ. So what glorifies Jesus Christ and points us to Jesus Christ in this part of the story of Joseph's life? Joseph is given a bride. Does Jesus not have a bride? I better see some head nodding. Should be some amens right now. Amen. We are the bride of Christ. What a privilege. What an honor. Um, but there's something that I want us to remember that I think sometimes we, we know, but maybe we lose a little bit. And it's important, I think, just to be, to be scripturally sound in our beliefs and our views. The bride of Christ is not a Gentile bride. It's not a Jewish bride. It's a new creation. The two are made. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and you know, as you know, in the, in the first century church, it started out all Jews. All the followers of Jesus, all the apostles, all the disciples, all the followers were, G, were Jews. And then they went out to all the land and spread the gospel, and Greeks, Gentiles, were becoming saved. And there was a lot that they had to figure out with what they had to do. With the Council of, of uh, Jerusalem, they learned that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised and things like that. So in Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh without hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's us, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, that's Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. I'll just stop there. So it's important to remember, I think in our culture, in the world we live in, in America, and Christians, all the things we have, we sometimes we think that you know, the bride of Christ is, is a Gentile bride. And it's not. It's not a Jewish bride. It's not a Gentile bride. It's one new person made out of both. Whoever comes to Christ is a new creation, a new being. And that is who the bride of Christ is. And we get to be that. In Galatians, Paul wrote, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor circumcised nor uncircumcised, nor slave nor free nor man or flippant. All the things that he mentions there. It's a new creation. When a groom asks a bride to be his, a woman to be his bride, right? How did God describe it in Genesis? The two shall be what? One. To be bride, the bride of Christ is to be one with Christ. It's to be one with Christ. Let's look at Ephesians 5, please. This is not, I'm going to warn you, if you're getting nervous, this is not going to be a message about marriage. That's not a message, that's a series, by the way. But, um, and conferences and all kinds of things. But let's look at this picture now. You guys all know this passage really well, I'm sure. Ephesians 5, verse 25. And what we, what we have here, before we read it, just a, a reminder that what we're looking at is a picture. It's a picture. All right, in Ephesians 5.25, he writes this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one hated his own flesh, but nurses it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We use this as a, as a, as a counsel and a guide, right? It's the number one place we go to when we need to do marital counseling. It usually starts with this one, not the wives, but the husbands, right? It's the first place we start. Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? How does Christ love the church? The first thing he says he gave himself for her. We cannot be the bride of Christ if he did not give himself for us first. He took the initiative. He stepped forward. He said, I'm going to show you what my love is. You are going to know not only what love is, but my love. Not that guy's love, and not that book's love, and not that video series love. My love. In my love, I lay down myself for you. I die for you. What, what a humbling thought to consider in our relationship with Christ. That it begins with that truth 
that he loved us first and gave himself for us. No expectation from us. We earned that love. We did not deserve that love. But we are recipients of that love because of what he did first, not because of anything we have done. There's no expectation on the bride here for the husband, Christ, to love. We love him because he loved us first. So he gave himself. And we're going to talk about how that is later because there's another part of, of Joseph's life that we'll talk about, so I'm not going to go too far in that in this moment. But the selfless, sacrificial love, abandoning all his needs, emptying himself. We sing in the hymn, right? Emptied himself of all but love. Emptied himself. That is the kind of passion love that Jesus has for his bride. Christ Christ sanctifies his bride. Why did he do this? That he might sanctify. Sanctify is to set apart. Set apart. When we're sanctified unto Christ, we are set apart from the world, from everything else. There's a purpose to Jesus' love. It's to call us out from this world. It's to call us away from everything else that takes our heart away from him. If you look at Christ and you realize how much he loves us, you cannot love another. You cannot. The only way you can and you can is if you do not look at his love. If you do not focus your attention, your heart, on how much he loves you, you can be just set adrift and, and be adulterous in your heart. But when we focus our heart and just keep remembering how much he loves us and how much he gave for us, then we become sanctified and set apart. When we're set apart, just like a bride is for her husband, we are to Christ. There's no flirtations. There's no flirtations with another lover. There's no affair. There's no dishonesty. There's nothing but humble reciprocation of that love. But looking at Christ, he set us apart. He did that work. Husbands, does your wife feel set apart? I know I promised this was not going to be a thing about marriage, but I just want to encourage us to not miss that opportunity. Does your wife feel sanctified by your behavior? There's a reason why this is the picture for us for marriage. I think the reason why I talked about Earlier, the relationship between Joseph and Asenath, his bride, if I pronounced it right, that there's something important to remember. The bride doesn't influence the groom. She did not influence Joseph and take him away. We do not influence Christ. Christ influences us. So I want to kind of balance this a little bit. And as, as I say these things, I just want to encourage men you are not Christ. This is a picture. Women, your husband is not Christ. He's going to make his best effort, but he is not Christ. Realize that when you're working these things out and you're taking this practical example to remember that. But when it comes to Christ and his bride, 
Christ influences the church. The church does not influence Christ. Um, it's important to remember Christ is perfect uh, in every way. You know, if you, if you think back now, um, I'll just kind of expand on this a little bit maybe. When God made everything in Genesis, he said it's good, right? And then he made man, and he watched him for about five minutes and went, this idiot needs a helper, right? So that's why I say, keep in perspective this passage where Jesus is perfect in the groom, and the bride does not influence the groom. But in our real-life relationships, we need to help each other out. Man, you need a helper. That's why you have a bride. Treat her like a helper, not a servant, right? So our relationship with Christ is a little different than that. But when it comes to us in Christ... He is the Lord. He is the one who gave himself. He's the one who brought us in. You know, if, you, if we go back to, uh, to Genesis, and I'll actually go back to the right verse. One of the things that we see, when she becomes his wife, look what it says in verse 45. Pharaoh gave her to Joseph. The bride is given to the groom. I was meditating on this, and I was thinking about how many times we hear in our vows, and I probably did it too in our wedding, do you blank take blank to be your husband? And do you blank take blank to be your wife? We're not taking anything. You don't take anything. You're given. You are given. A bride is given to her groom. The father gives her away. It's a gift received. We are the bride given to Christ. That's what he got out of going to the cross. Us. We are a gift to him. And so I'll just tie this in again one more time. I apologize if it's, if it's too much about marriage, but do you cherish your spouse like a gift? Because they were given to you by God. So they need to be cherished. God gave us to Christ. Do you know what Christ does? He cherishes us. He cares for us. He provides for us. He provides our needs. He meets every need. He goes beyond and above anything we can even think we need. And he does it all by giving of himself. Christ is the perfect, perfect room. The bride is given. It is a gift. Now, Joseph, um, John, I've got to tell you something funny about this, but um, John did all the assignments. I don't want to go off on a little tangent, but I completely misunderstood my assignment until about 10 o'clock last night. The, um, um, <laughs> it's pretty funny. So, so if we look now in verse 45 again, Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now that he's got his bride, he goes out over the land of Egypt. What was Jesus' life like? Was Jesus hanging out in a palace? Uh, Dan, you throw that map up for me? I hope this map is accurate. I didn't have time to uh, go through every single thing. It was not easy finding something. Is it big enough? Can you see it? All right. Joe said no, right? I knew, I knew you'd be the one to say no. All right. That's a, a map of the region. Judea's to the bottom. Samaria's in the middle. Galilee's up top. Perea is to the right. And that whole area, you see all those white blocks? Someone tried to map out all the places Jesus went recorded in the Gospels. 
He did not hang around one little area. He was traveling constantly for three years. He had no home. He had no place to rest his head. Why was Joseph out? By the way, I, I don't know if this is accurate. Um, Egypt, at least as far as I could find on the Google, is 380,000 square miles. Judea and Samaria is 2,270 square miles. Now, how did Joseph travel? Chariot, horse, maybe he had one of those things with guys in their underwear killing, carrying them on poles. I don't know, right? But he got around, no problem. He got carried around. It was not a problem for Joseph to travel this great land. How did Jesus travel? By foot. Jesus walked everywhere. What's the difference? The difference is when you're in town and Joseph comes in in his chariot or the, the, the couch with guys in underwear, and he goes by, you see him go by. Oh, there's Joseph. What happened when Jesus came to town? They got to touch him. They got to know him. They got to meet him. They got to be impacted by him. They get to be taught by him. They didn't just see him come by and have him check with one guy. Yeah, the silo looks good. You got all the grain. Everything's good. All right, we're moving on. Jesus spent time with people. There's a difference between Jesus and Joseph in this thing in one big way. Jesus went all over the region. There was nowhere where they didn't know who Jesus was in this area of Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Am I pronouncing it right? Perea? Perea? Um, what was Joseph doing during that time? He was making sure everything was prepared for the drought to come. He was going through Egypt. The reason why he went all through Egypt is to make sure for the next seven years all the grain was collected that they were supposed to collect. What was Jesus doing in the time that he was traveling? He was gathering people. He was spreading the gospel, the good news, preparing people for what they needed to hear, what was to come, inviting them into the kingdom of heaven. Joseph's preparing people for a drought. Jesus is preparing people for judgment. There's judgment coming. And this work goes on today, doesn't it? I sure hope. People need to know that there's something coming, and they need to prepare for it. Jesus' time was here three years to prepare people to continue the work for him. Joseph didn't do everything. Joseph prepared people in the region, and then they worked in that area. What does Jesus do? Jesus wants people gathering preparing, letting people know a lot worse than a drought for seven years. Judgment. Judgment from God is coming. The mission of Jesus was to bring in the kingdom of heaven so people knew what it was, how it was, and how to get there. And he traveled everywhere. Joseph his goal was to save the people. Those people were going to die anyway, even if there wasn't a drought. Jesus came to save people, and those he saves never taste death. Never taste death. Now what we see is that this happens in verse 46. Um, this is maybe a, a smaller point before we get to a bigger point, but we see that Joseph was 30 years old. He was sold by his brothers at the age of 17, so for 13 years he's been away uh, from home. Why is the age 30 matter? 
Anybody else do something at 30? The Lord Jesus, right? Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. Is it just Joseph and just Jesus? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 4, please. One of my kids asked me one time, why do you go so many verses? I'll tell you why. Um, When I was a young Christian, I learned my Bible the best way by preachers making me flip through it all the time. There's a reason why I do this. I'm just telling you up front. I want you to know. I don't want you to take my word for it, by the way. There's a reason why we, why we do this, but um, it really helps me know where things were in my Bible um, because preachers made me flip to it all the time. So I try and reciprocate that. Numbers 4.3. This is um, the duties of the priests. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. 30 years old, when they came out of the wilderness and they set up the tabernacle, 30 years old is when a man was old enough to work as a priest. 30 years old. Jesus began his ministry at 30 years old. There's just symbolism. Jesus is not a priest according to the order of Levi, right? He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we have to be careful of the things we put on Jesus. But when we see these symbolisms, we see Joseph is 30. Moses begins the priesthood at 30. Jesus is 30. What's the significance? I don't know, but I'll tell you what I think. I think, based on my experience and my ripe old age of 56, is that there's a maturity that kicks in at 30. Um, not that long ago, five, ten years ago, I forget, one day I was, I was sitting and thinking, doing a little Winnie the Pooh, and, and sometimes I just sits and thinks, right? And I realized that, <clears throat> no offense to anybody, but like in your 20s, you think you know everything. You're an adult now. You're basically a teenager with a credit card in a car, right? You're, you're, you know, you, you still have kind of the same tendencies as a teenager, but you're 20. Maybe you got your own place, you got your own home, you start a family, but you think you know everything. In the 30s, you kind of go, I don't know as much as I thought I did. I got bills and debts, and you know, I got kids, and they're sick, and you know, I got stuff, man. I got stuff. This is not what I thought it was going to be. The 40s, you begin to figure that stuff out, and you start putting it together. This is how it's supposed to be. And in the 50s, you start living it outright. But unfortunately, you're tired. And so from here on out, it's about sharing your knowledge. Taking the hands off the wheel, let the young people do it, but share your knowledge. So I want to encourage everyone, share your knowledge. The young people need your experience. They need your wisdom. They need it. We all need it. And that doesn't expire, man. We just need to share our wisdom with each other all the time. Share our experiences. That's why we have each other. So I just want to encourage us in that. Um, now, there's something that's happened here in, in, a, in a summation way for Joseph um, that's similar to Christ. Up until this point in his life, Joseph has basically, from the time his brothers sold him until now, he's suffered. He's been away from home. You think he had a good in Potiphar's house? He was away from home. And he's living with this pain and guilt and, and heart, heart, maybe not guilt, but heartache that his brother sold him, you know? There's no peace there. You may live comfortably working in Potiphar's house, but there's no peace. And he's been in jail. He's been imprisoned. And uh, it was the baker who forgot him, right? Baker forgot him for two years. The guy said, I'll remember you. Forgets him for two years. There's suffering that happened in Joseph's life. And you know what happens now? He's put in a place where we're going to use the word Glory. He went from suffering to glory. If there's anything that's a picture of Jesus Christ, it's that. 
Jesus' life here was the whole three years that he was walking with the, with the disciples was not easy. Not just the discomforts of life, but they're knuckleheads, right? All they do is argue and bicker, and who's going to be the greatest, and who's going to be the best, and can I sit at your right hand? And he's like, I'm trying to teach you the kingdom of heaven, and you want to know who's going to be first, right? The first is last, okay? That's the kind of stuff Jesus is dealing with. I'm going to call that suffering. But we know it gets worse than that. As we looked at in the picture of the bride, of the bride and the groom, Jesus gave himself. And we know so well. We just spent time this morning remembering the suffering that Jesus went through. But the suffering had a purpose. It had a purpose. Jesus received glory. Jesus received glory. The time that he was here, I'm just going to ramble off a few verses. We're not going to look them up. If you want to write them down, you can. Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 12, Mark 9, 22, Luke 17, 25, and even after the resurrection in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, Jesus tells them every single time, I must suffer many things. That's important. Jesus not come to suffer. He came to suffer many things. Joseph went through many things. That's fine. What Jesus went through, he was rejected by the people he came to save. His own people. The Jewish nation rejected him. The disciples deserted him. They followed him for three years. When things went bad, they scattered and left him alone. The abuse, the punching, the spitting, the mocking, the crown of thorns, these each one are a different thing. We don't just want to say Jesus suffered in one little bucket and not realize the magnitude of everything that he went through even before his, his wrists were nailed to the cross and his feet were nailed to the cross. And he was left there, pardon me for being brutal, but he was left there to hang until he suffocated. He died in agony, alone, stripped, abused, and he did that because he loves us. And you know what he got for it? He got glory. He got glory. Turn me to First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Actually, no, I'm going to go up a little bit. I just love how I just changed my mind on the fly. All right. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. 
searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. We don't worship a man who died and got buried into a tomb. We worship a risen Savior, the Messiah, who left the tomb, defeated death, and received glory and crowns. Last week, John read from Philippians 2, and we know it. He's given the name that is above every name. Every knee shall bow before him. That's glory. I've been, I've, glory to me, I know, some, I think Steve Price talked about this too, right? To me, I, think, I find a hard time explaining glory. It's like glory is just the awe that you step back when you see it. Glory is just honor and worship. You know, actually, the, the, the word used for the kind of glory that we're talking about, you know, glory sometimes is used to boast, right? I'll glory in Christ my Lord it means I'll, I'll boast in him. But this kind of glory we're talking about is the kind of glory that's just, he's radiant. It reflects the radiance of God. And sometimes uh, it, when, you, when you search for the real root word that came out of the Greek, you'll find sometimes it's translated glory, sometimes it's translated honor, and sometimes it's even translated worship. Where did Jesus get this glory? From the Father. Uh, let's, let's be realistic in our humility here. We don't glory Christ. We don't have the position, the power, the throw. We have the ability to worship, and we bow down before him and recognize his preeminence. But the actual position he was given, the, the blessing of glory for what he did, that comes from God the Father. Do you remember the, the high priestly prayer, right? Jesus said in, in John 17, Father, let them see the glory that I had before time began, that they may see your glory. And in Jesus, all the glory that he gets, all the adoration and praise that he deserves is there to point to the Father too. It's not, he, and he still has a place of humility. Glory is given to him by the Father. It points to the Father. The glory is given because of victory over death, because he fought the good fight, because he, um, as, as we looked at this morning in, in Hebrews at the Lord's table, right? He did not consider the things of this world, but he looked ahead. Sacrificial love. I don't know uh, if Joseph ever thought he would see the life after prison. I don't know what he expected after that, and I think he may have been very surprised at what he was given when he revealed Pharaoh's dreams. He could have been sent right back to prison. Who knows? I don't think there's any reason to think he had any expectation of being glorified. But I know this. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew what awaited him. To be glorified and to glorify the Father. Join me to John 17, please. I know I just said this. This is why I need to write better notes and not just verses, so I know what I'm going to say. John 17, 
Father, I desire that also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I want to encourage us this morning to see Jesus' glory. See his glory. We can see it now. It's revealed in his word. God's word is wonderful and it gives us lessons and helps us deal with with sin and problems and relationships. It's a guide to life. Um, it's, It's our hope and our promise and all those things. But sometimes you need to just spend time looking at his glory. See his glory. Look for his glory. Find his glory. And enjoy the fulfilling privilege it is to be awestruck just at who Jesus is and what he did. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you again for our Lord Jesus Christ. Continually, forgive me for saying again, continually we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us with an everlasting love, a love that could not be defeated by suffering, by abuse, by hurt and rejection, a love that could not be defeated by temptation, by your enemy, a love that just could not be defeated, a love that shows his bride He's willing to give himself for her, that he cherishes her and he sanctifies her and she belongs to him. Father, thank you for what our Lord Jesus Christ went through, for what he accomplished at the cross of Calvary, that it is finished, it is complete, and we know with absolute certainty he has glory. Help us to see this glory, to remember in in perfect humility, who our Lord is and how you view him, that we may worship him better, we may serve him greater, and he may, may be glorified in others around us. Lord God, thank you again for our Lord Jesus Christ. We exalt and praise him and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week.